in adult life, even children's lives, so often involve suffering that's inexplicable or sudden or terrifying or just low-key depression. And there needs to be places in our churches and in our services where we are able to bring that before God. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and uh, Adam Narlock is is not here, but he sends his holiday love to all of you, um, and uh, he'll be back, hopefully, hopefully we'll, well, I, I'll see his face. You won't, you guys won't see his face. You'll hear his beautiful voice, but I'll get to see what I think might be um, the most perfect hair uh, the world has ever seen. Uh, I wish you guys could see just how flawless Adam's hair is at all times. I don't think it's moved in four years. I don't know, but it is, it is uh, a breath to, to behold. So anyway, enough about Adam's hair. Um, we're here to talk about this week's guest. And this week's guest, I'm very excited about. Um, this is another uh, uh, author that my dad uh, clued me into. He, he gave me one of her books a while back uh, and um, really thought it would be appropriate for the holidays. Um, something that we try to do, or at least have tried to do over the last several, several years, is uh, find a guest maybe that, that might be helpful for those who, um, going into the holiday season, maybe it's not the easiest time for them. Um, we want to be very uh, cognizant of the fact that uh, the holidays aren't, aren't happy and joyous for everyone. Uh, some of us are very, very fortunate, and it's a very merry and, and joyous season. But for s- some folks out there, maybe you are going into the holidays, maybe you're walking into Christmas this year for the first time without a loved one or, um, you know, some tragedy maybe um, happened to, to hit home uh, at some point around the holidays. And so maybe it's, maybe it's a rough time for you. And so, um, so we've tried to bring on some guests maybe that, uh, that hopefully that will be helpful in some way. And so this year we've got Dr. Kathleen O'Connor. Uh, she has written multiple books specifically on um, kind of the theme of uh, relating modern day uh, trauma and disaster with um, instances where you see that occur within the Bible. And so um, she is um, an Old Testament scholar and the William Marcellus McFeeders Prote- Professor Emerita of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary. Um, she's got multiple books out, like I said, that all kind of relate to that idea of trauma and pain and suffering um, including the book that we spend most of our time on. Now, this book is not brand new. Uh, came out in 2002. It's called Lamentations and the Tears of the World. Uh, but she's got a newer one out um, that, that relates to that same kind of theme uh, called Jeremiah, Pain and Promise. Uh, and that came out in 2012. Um, just terrific books. Can't recommend them highly enough. Um, and, and hopefully you guys will enjoy uh, the conversation. And, and really the main topic here that we focus on is, is this idea uh, that a life of faith includes um, just sometimes brutal honesty in our conversations with the divine and how that's okay. Um, it's, it's not a bad thing to occasionally uh, be human and be frustrated and, um, and, and even kind of yell at God. You know, God can handle it. I think that's the, the main thing that we try to um, focus on here. So, um, so if you're having a rough time, it's okay. It's all right to be frustrated. It's okay to yell. Um, God can handle it, you know? So anyway, with that, 
I want to do some housekeeping stuff here since this is our last episode of the year. Um, We won't have any more episodes out 2019. I do have a blog post that I've been working on literally since last year. Um, Just wasn't ready in time. uh, And it's very Christmas themed. So it would not have made sense if I would have put it out later. So (laughs) so, uh, just finished it. Uh, after rewriting it about 55 times. And so that'll be out next week. Uh, so something uh, for you guys to read at least. And then we will take January off. We'll be back, uh, like I said, in um, February with some brand new content, some stuff we're very, very excited about. We have some very cool things planned for our 100th episode, which is quickly approaching. Hard to believe that we've been doing this for uh, for four years. So um, very exciting. So thank you guys who have been with us since the beginning. Thank you to those who have discovered us somehow, some way, um, and, and, uh, have jumped on for the ride. Uh, we, we definitely appreciate it. Um, believe us when we say, um, that, uh, the fact that we get to do this, um, is not lost on us. Um, so we feel lucky every single time we sit down to, to record with one of these wonderful guests. So, um, thank you guys so much. Um, as usual, if you want to keep, uh, up on what we're up to, uh, and keep track of us and, um, read our dumb tweets. (laughs) So, uh, you can follow us, our personal and um, our uh, podcast uh, social media uh, feeds are all, uh, you can link to those on the, uh, the website. So www.thedeconstructionist.com. Uh, there you can link to all our social media. You can read our blog under the journal link. Um, if we are up to anything live, you can, you can uh, check that out there. Uh, other than that, all of our entire backlog, all 95 episodes, that's crazy, um, are all available to, to stream straight through our website. Um, additionally, if you, if you feel so inclined, if you want to support us financially uh, to help uh, keep the podcast moving, uh, we do have a Patreon campaign that you can link to directly from our website. You can do a one-time donation too if you want. But the Patreon campaign, um, we have a very popular book club, Book of the Month Club, where we mail you out a book, uh, potentially by a guest, sometimes not. And sometimes it's just something that we're reading that we think is really interesting and worthwhile. Uh, but uh, if you sign up for a recurring monthly donation there, uh, we send you out a book. So that's fun. Uh, otherwise, we have merch on there. We have T-shirts. We have pint glasses. We have coffee mugs. So if you want your coffee and your beer to taste better, uh, you can drink one out of there. So anyway. I'll ship one straight to your house. Anyway, um, what else? Oh, uh, so being December, being the last uh, podcast of the year, I want to thank a few people. I want to thank all the guests we've had this year. Uh, Thomas J. Ord, uh, the great Pete Enns, um, Barbara Brown-Taylor, uh, Karen Gonzalez, um, our dear friend Mel Forsyth, um, sweet uncle uh, Alexander Shia, Dan Hasselton uh, from Jars of Clay, and uh, Kathleen O'Connor, this week's guest. And I uh, also want to thank all the musicians who contributed music. Again, the musicians that you hear on our podcast week in and week out are people that volunteer their music um, you know, for free. Uh, and so um, we can't thank them enough. And please go out and support them. These are artists who are trying to make a living. So um, follow them. Uh, we've got a playlist on Spotify where we update it with all the artists that we use on the podcast. But also go follow them and, and buy their music um, musicians we had in this year, um, amazing musicians like Cody Fry, Josh, uh, Gouton, uh, Remedy Drive, uh, Jordan Searcy, Truslow, uh, Rivers and Robots, Jars of Clay and Wild Dorado. So, uh, thank you to all those bands and, and musicians who, um, who, who volunteered their talent to just help make our podcast sound just a little bit better. 
Um, also want to thank, as always, uh, Ryan Battles, who is the guy who makes our website so pretty. And uh, anytime that I can't figure out, which is, you know, every other week what's going on with it, um, he helps fix it for me. Uh, also, the photos that you see on the website, Jared Hevron, our good bu buddy there, um, who moved to L.A. and left us alone, but that's fine. Uh, also, the logos that you see are our beautiful logo designed by Joseph Ernst um, and our banner designed by Stephen Flug. And then, of course, all of our T-shirt designs uh, by Joseph Ernst, uh, Chad Flanagan, Colin Rigsby, uh, the Vespertine himself, and then uh, Jason Turner, uh, who is also lead singer of a, a band in his own right, Fashion Week. So check them out. And uh, But again, thank you to all those guys for the designs that they provided for our lovely T-shirts. So uh, with that, I won't keep you guys any further uh, since this is already the longest intro ever. Um, we'll get to the good juice here. And uh, uh, thank you guys again so much, though. Um, we love all you guys. Um, email us if you, if you, if you want to chat with us. We'll, we'll, we'll try to get back to you as quickly as we can. Uh, deconstructionistpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also interact with us through social media. Uh, but again, thank you guys so much. We wouldn't have a podcast if you guys weren't still listening um, and find uh, apparently find value in, in, in what we do. So we'll continue to, to bring more guests uh, in the new year. So um, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And, and we love you guys and, and keep deconstructing. And we will see you on the other side. So thank you so much. And without further ado, Kathleen freaking O'Connor. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm very excited this week uh, to have Dr. O'Connor with us. Uh, Dr. O'Connor, thank you so much for, for taking some time out of your evening to, uh, to spend with us. Oh, I'm, I'm so pleased that you're interested in my work at all. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, again, this is kind of, we have a running joke that my, my dad, uh, Pastor David Williamson, um, we, we have a kind of unofficial David, David Williamson series, as it were. Um, so books that he recommends. Uh-huh. That I end up loving and, and are oddly all, always um, very apropos of what's going on at the time. So he he seems to have a knack for that. And so um, so we thought this this episode, um, we, we try to always think of, of good topics to release right around the holidays. This will come out right around Christmas time. And um, yeah, so this is this is our special treat for Christmas. And cheerful, cheery, yeah. cheery news for Christmas. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things where um, for some people, Christmas is in the holidays in general um, are, are very cheery time and, and great time to be with family. And for some people, it's it's not it's not so much. They, maybe they've lost a loved one or um, they're, they're going through right. some sort of traumatic experience. And um, mm -hmm. I've, I feel like uh, your book on lament was just really hit home for me. And so um before we get into that, though, talk a little bit about yourself, um, kind of your upbringing, and, and how you got into the work that you currently do. Yeah, okay. Um, well, um, I was raised uh, in a very strictly observant Roman Catholic family in upstate New York, Troy, New York. Um, and um, it, was, it was strict, but it was funny. Um, my father uh, particularly was... Uh, 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 well-educated in theology because he went to Fordham University. 
and he was always critical of the Catholic Church, even as he loved it and we all participated in it. So I went to Catholic schools from no, from first grade to the end of college. I went to a Catholic woman's college, and it was only when I got to the Catholic woman's college that I really started to love learning. Um, and um, I wanted, as a result of that experience, I really wanted an intellectual life and a spiritual life. Uh, but when I graduated from college, I just didn't know what I was going to do. So I took a job working for Bloomingdale's in Manhattan, the department store. And the contrast between that experience of, um, of college, this, this vivid place for the leadership of women and interest in intellectual and spiritual life, the contrast with Bloomingdale's, which was always exciting and glamorous, was so vacuous um, that... After a year's time, um, I decided to become a Dominican sister. Oh wow! And um, that's a, an order. <laughs> that's an order of religious women, and um, it was uh, it was a difficult decision to do that. I sort of had this sense of a calling, but I didn't really want to do it. I felt it was so culturally uh, back backward, even while I wanted what it represented. So anyway, I joined up and I stayed in the order for 15 years. And um, that in itself is a long story, but it involved, uh, it, it involved very happy times. Uh, and uh, that is actually how I got into biblical studies because um, after teaching seventh and eighth grade for a few years, I was invited to consider graduate school. And the only thing that really spoke to me of all the studies we were doing was the scriptures. This was post-Vatican II, and the church was, um, to me, very exciting because um, the cliche, Vatican Council II, for people who might not know, uh, which was the uh, reform movement in the Catholic Church in the 1960s, and that was now, the the fruit of that was coming forth and was so inspiring to me. Um, uh, Alas, it's a lot of it's been lost, but uh, nonetheless, um, uh, that was the time when, uh, uh, I don't know if you know Raymond Brown, New Testament scholar, yeah. was uh, trying, to get, trying to get Catholics to read the Bible and was doing a brilliant job of it. And I just, I just caught, the, the, I caught the flame somehow. And um, so anyway, I went on and got a, I was still in the order, and I went on and got a master's degree at a place called Providence College and it was in scripture. And then from there, uh, I taught there for a while and college students were, seemed to me to be so hungry and so open and so much fun. I decided I needed more study. So off I went to Princeton Theological Seminary where I did a PhD uh, in Old Testament studies. And um, so um, I, in the, in the middle of that process, I decided to leave the community for um, because uh, I have to say, in looking at my life, the, the work I was doing was thrilling, and yet there was emotional emptiness for me. And so I had to bring that part of myself together somehow. So I left the community, and then uh, as I, shortly after that, I was offered a position to teach at um, a Roman Catholic seminary and school theology called Marinol, Marinol School of Theology, the School of Catholic Foreign Mission. John, have you heard of it? Do you know? No, you no, know I'm it? not familiar. It, 
well, it's really the, it was really the hotbed of, uh, of liberation theology uh, because of the uh, Marinol missionaries, the Catholic Marinol missionaries, were very involved in Latin America. Of course, they were, they were global, but they were involved in Latin America. And um, just as I arrived at the school, the, the four American churchwomen had just been uh, murdered in El Salvador. So I walked into, I walked into a place of um, deep deep trauma already. That community was, of course, uh, in, in sorrow and worry. But in relation to my work with biblical studies, I taught there for 13 years and in the process um, married my husband, was met and married my husband. Um, and, uh, and the thing about that experience, I think, was probably the most formative theologically for me of anything in my life because the students at that school were either people who were um, returning from mission experience in the two-thirds world or preparing for it or doing justice and peace work in the United States. And when I tried to teach them about much of what I learned, um, the kind of technical aspects of biblical studies that we were learning in graduate school, such as the four-source theory of the Pentateuch, do I need to explain that? Yeah, you might, you might have to expand on that one a little. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, well. Uh, at the time I was doing graduate studies, there was a lot of emphasis in trying to understand how the biblical books were composed, uh, where they came from, because people, particularly the Pentateuch, people were were seeing that there were contradictions. There were so many different names for God. There were repetitions, and how do you explain that? Um, in, in these biblical books, and the, and the, um, the solution from really about the, the well the middle of the 18th century um, is often often known as this four source theory or the documentary hypothesis. That is the theory that the biblical books, but particularly the Pentateuch, were comprised over a long period of time. They were put together over a long, long period of time from different pre-existing oral and written sources. So that the actual biblical books are kind of late in in uh, Israelite history or Jewish history, but the origins their origins rested way back in history, and that that kind of approach to the text pretty much took biblical passages and cut them into pieces. And we're guessing this is from the work known as the Yahwist source, or this is the work known as the Elohist source, etc. So anyway. It was very dry analysis, uh, historical analysis of the text. But when I got to Marinol, to these people who were working with people, um, native communities of faith around the world, they were just not interested in that at all. So I had to really begin to think about what what does these what do these texts have to say now to people living in struggle in conflict, in societies that are falling apart, in societies that are newly forming, and, um, and to the people who are actually uh, in mission with them. Um, and, and the result was that um, when I got people working on text, we, we couldn't agree on a single thing about um, what the general thrust of a text was. And that's got what got me thinking about the impact of one's context, the impact of one's life, the historical circumstances in which one finds oneself, the culture one lives in, is so influential in, help, in interpretation throughout history. So 
Um, so um, that that um, that opened biblical texts to me um, ever more deeply because um, I was looking at people suffering. I was looking at the suffering of the people in front of me, as well as suffering through the texts. So. What else should I say? Okay, and then then that school closed, so then I went and taught at um, here at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. I was invited to come down, and uh, so I left the Northeast and came to the South, and I found many wonderful things, though it felt like jumping off the edge of the earth when I decided to do it. <laughs> yeah, a little, little different cultural <laughs> experience, I'd imagine. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> So, uh, it, so it seems like your your entire life and career kind of led up to the the work that you've really engaged in, and and so talk a little bit about um, specifically how you decided to write a book on lament, and maybe even before you answer that question, for people who are listening who don't who aren't familiar with the word, maybe maybe they've heard of the Book of Lamentations, but they're not entirely sure what what is lament uh, in a biblical sense, and then you know again what okay, led you good. into writing a book on that. Okay. Um, so, um, lament, uh, it, it, laments are all around us even now, but laments in the biblical sense are a form in which the, uh, the, an individual or the community cries out to God about what's wrong with their lives. It's, it's really contextual. Um, uh, oh God, and you know, there's a common phrase is, oh God, how long, how long, oh Lord. Um, and, uh, there's, several psalms that are known as laments in which uh, people call out to God, complain to God, tell God their troubles, um, pour out their hearts, really. And, um, and then often, but not always, um, there is a, a particular appeal to God, and then there is sometimes uh, a response from God that's recorded in the psalms. And um, so a lament... The way a lament functions is it enables an individual or a community to say, here's what happens. This is terrible. How can you, our God, the one who created us and formed us and shaped us as your people, who want us to praise you, how could you let this happen? And what are you going to do to fix it? And so um, uh, in some of these, in some laments, I mean, the, the, the speaker really lays it on before God, and you, you find um, you find this in Psalms. You find it, of course, in what I'll describe in a minute as the Book of Lamentations, but also the Book of Job. The Book of Job is filled with laments, where Job is just telling God how it is. Yes. It's just <laughs> awful. And um, and and um, my colleague um, Walter Brueggemann used to did a lot of writing about this and how how churches haven't been really helpful in providing this resource to our people. Because um, for some reason, we sometimes think all we need to do is praise and 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 be happy, and and God will make us flourish. But that isn't the experience of people throughout history, or even of even adult people who've lived any life at all. It, it, suffering comes, trouble comes, and so uh, the laments, the lament form provides a, a structure in which to present to God this, these, the things that have happened, the wrongdoings done against one, or the loss, the, 
the, the fear, the, the terrors of life. Um, so I was going to say something else, but it just slipped my mind. But at any rate, oh, um, I, I do uh, think the idea that there's a form of, for this is also um, pointing toward faith because the, the laments are prayers. They're, they assume that God is listening, even if there seems to be no response from God. The assumption is, in the midst of this awfulness, the relationship with God is still there. And um, it, it seems to me this is that these are prayers for our time in so many ways that you and I were talking about before. Where do you go when I need you most? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting too because that as I dug into your uh, to your book here, it it seems very antithetical to the way that we tend to approach prayer and our relationship with with God with the divine in especially in Western culture, where um, and, and you right you talk about this in the book and it's fantastic where you talk about um, all the ways that we avoid pain and suffering and it it just seems like we do that even with prayer like we don't bring God all of the nasty stuff only the the good. As you said, you know, we, we only, even in our worship music, um, uh, one of our friends, Dr. Jacqueline Bussey said, where, where are the lament songs? Oh yeah. You know, in church. So <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't hear that as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. Right. You don't. I mean, I think it depends on the church you're in Sure. because you know, some of the more the, like belong to a high church. So one of the, one of the, one of the resources at the high churches are use of more, I thought of more, but not really of more, but of, uh, Holy Week services and so forth, where we do, we do tend to do that. But um, even in the, le- the lectionary, the common lectionary, there's so little use of lament um, that it uh, makes one sad because um, a- a- an adult life, even children's lives, so often involves suffering that's inexplicable or sudden or terrifying or just low-key depression. And there needs to be places in our churches and in our services where we are able to bring that before God. Yeah. We, so, we, oh, you did ask me. Oh, go on. It, yeah, go ahead. I was just say, it, it, I was going to say, you did ask me how, how I started writing about oh, laments. Yes. I didn't oh, just yeah. decide to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, by all means, by all means, um, yeah. Carol Newsom, Carol Newsom and Sharon Ringy asked me um, to write um, a long time ago, the first uh, women's Bible commentary that they wrote. They asked me to do Jeremiah, which I had done my dissertation on, and uh, and then to do an article on Lamentations. And I liked doing it a lot because I was discovering some lots of new things about it. And then um, after that was published, um, John Collins asked me if I'd write an article on Lamentations for um, the New Interpreter's Bible of the time. And I did that. When I finished that, I realized I had so much more to say that didn't quite fit in that format. So that's that's what led me to the actual little book that I have, um, Lamentations and Tears of the World. So uh, that's how I did it. I mean, I didn't. It wasn't like I had some great insight. It was it just came my way. But it, um, but it came my way. I have this belief that that 
scholarship is often about our own lives. It's at least in my case, it's a form of psychotherapy, um, implicitly so. And uh, so it it was fortuitous or providential that uh, I, I got into Lamentations. And on top of that, I could see. Uh, I could seek because I went back to look at it since I wrote it in 2001 and it's now, what is it? 2019. Yeah. I, I didn't really remember a lot, <laughs> but when I go back and look at it now, I can see how my subsequent work flows from this. So thank you for. Oh, absolutely. Me back there. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's a perfect uh, segue from lamentations into your, your book on Jeremiah and Genesis and, and, uh, lament into grief and pain and, and just how we deal with those, those things. And, um, right. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about, um, the book of lamentations itself. Um, as you say is, is, uh, sure. uh, it's a lot of poetry and there's kind of a weird, uh, structure to it that you talk about. And so talk about <laughs> what were the, uh, what were the the ancient Israelites dealing with that they were so uh, upset and and what kind okay, of trauma? Well, let's start there. Yeah, that's a yeah. great place. And please, when I start getting into lecture form, just interrupt me. So <laughs> oh, I, I love it. It's, keep it's at good. it too long. I get, I get like I get like a fire hose. Um, well, uh, first of all, the, the situation that produced it um, uh, is uh, believed by almost all critical biblical scholars to have been the collapse of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem. In the sixth century BCE or BC, um, when the Babylonians invaded the city, they did it three times, and um, uh, 597, 587, and 582. 597, they just sort of took over. 587, sometimes marked as 86, um, they uh, they really. Uh, invaded in aggressive and uh, terrifying ways. They broke through the walls of the city. They uh, set the palace uh, on fire. They destroyed the temple. And they uh, left the people. Um, they, they occupied the land. And they deported people who were the leaders, the religious leaders, maybe some landowners, surely anybody who was still alive who had worked for the king, and they deported the nobility. So you get just just that brief description provides uh, the circumstances in which the world has collapsed. Uh, so it, it's, it's a kind of... Um, I, I developed this later. It's such a traumatic experience for the people um, because they've lost... Many of them have lost their material life. They've lost loved ones, some, we don't know how many. Um, many of the people who had survived in Jerusalem uh, go to the northern part of Israel, in, and they're just, so they're displaced in the land. And then the leaders are forced marched around um, the desert and brought to Babylon, where they're held in what if anybody has done any study of the history of Israel, this is the exilic period. And the ones in exile are a small minority, but clearly the leaders. So um, I hope that gives an idea of what happens, what's happened to their life. But it's not only that their physical existence has been affected and their daily life, it's that their theological, the, the theological um, 
canopy that kept them safe is collapsed. So, um, for example, um, the biblical language is that Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is God's holy dwelling place. The language is that God put David on the throne of Judah, a king of Israel, forever. Then there is the sense that these are God's chosen people. There is the belief that God, we are God's chosen people. And all of that is now in question and in deep doubt because their world is ruined. Their world is collapsed. And um, so um, at, at this point, the question, the question really is for the people um, lamenting what's happened. There's, they're not even at a, at a point yet in this book to be able to consider whether or not there's a future. It's all about grieving it, weeping over it, trying to begin to understand it. And um, in my own thinking, um, the prophetic books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, I'm not alone in thinking this, um, again, uh, make further attempts to make sense of it. And now I'm arguing that the book of Genesis is even addressing the aftermath of this um, and uh, creating not only a depiction of the terrible things that happened, but of new life afterwards. So for me, it's all one, it's becoming one long narrative. But for Lamentations itself, there's hardly any uh, way to understand their living in what I later come to call traumatic reality. There are hardly words to describe what's happened. And yet they can dig into the traditions of lament that they have already in their culture and find themselves standing before God, trying to, trying to make sense of this, trying to, trying to just even take it in and understand it. So that's, that's what I think the book is doing. And the way it does it is um, kind of convoluted and technical. So if I get, if I get lost in this, stop me. <laughs> but um, there are five poems. Um, the five poems are playing with or in the form of an acrostic. Uh, Olive Base, Gimel Dallas, or ABCD, and um, they play with that. Each of them plays with that in a different way. Um, and the first two um, have similarities. The third poem is the longest one in the book, and the only place where even an inkling of hope appears. And then after that, the efforts at acrostics sort of dwindle away. And the way I interpret that in, in chapters four and five is to say the people sort of become exhausted and end in what would appear to be hopelessness. So that the last, um, I have to go to, I have to look at the Bible right now. Um, since this is 20 years ago, I did this work. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, the last, uh, the last part of chapter five. Um, here's what the it's the voice of the people in the final poem. You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why have you forgotten us completely? I am using an um, NRSV translation instead of my own because I can't find that fast enough. Why have you forgotten us completely? Why have you forsaken us these many days? 
Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days. Here's the last line. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. So you can, for me, you can hear in that last line the, the precipice on which they sit. They're talking to God. They're begging for God's attention. And yet they're in such doubt about whether this relationship can even go forward. It's, it's, a, it's a moment of, or it's an expression of that despair, would we say, with just the tinge of possibility that maybe God is still there and will restore us. So, okay, the acrostics. Um, acrostics, there's a whole lot of question about why this book would be written in acrostics. And um, from what I remember about it, um, if you put, uh, what, what I really think is that you put, it, you put your poetry in alphabetical order because it helps you express yourself. I mean, I invite the, the listeners to your program to consider sitting down and writing a poem using a different letter, a sequential letter of the alphabet yeah. for each, each line of the poem. What it does is it forces you to narrow down your focus and to express through every letter of the alphabet, which is as if to say a complete expression. There's nothing else to say. Oh, wow. At the same time, using, using the, alf- the acrostic form um, gives order to what I'm trying to show is the most disordered thing that could possibly happen. It looks as if the world is in complete chaos because life has been destroyed. Um, and so in order, if you, use, if you use an acrostic, then you can, you can start to say, you can start to impose order on what you're, on what you're speaking about. So, okay, so there's acrostics. And there's one other thing that I think is really important for interpreting and that is that the five poems use different poetic voices, by which I mean um, a different speaker um, talks in the poems. So, for example, chapter one, if someone wants to go look, they find a narrator describing what's happened to the city, and they personify this. The poem personifies the city. She's a woman. Jerusalem is a woman, a widow sitting on the hill, all by herself, abandoned. And um, he goes on to describe the suffering of this woman, and she then starts to speak. Um, that is, and we know this from the Hebrew um, pronouns, the, the, a woman, the woman starts to speak, and she speaks as if from inside the experience, as if she, well, as, as the one who is suffering, and she stands for the whole of the people. And she's lost her children. She's lost everything. And she's abandoned. And she and then, and this happens across all the poems, I think, she calls out to God to look and see. That's all any of the speakers want in this poem is for God to see, to look. The Hebrew word is ra'ah, to look, look upon me. Look, see what's happened to me, and um, and I, I will point out that later that, or even now, that 
that God never replies in this book. Um, so um, so the, the, the poetic voices are the narrator and the city woman, Zion or Jerusalem, in, in chapters one and two. In chapter three, there's a new voice. And it, um, I call him this, the uh, captured soldier. Uh, it's it's a clearly a male voice. It seems different from the narrator. And he talks about being a captive. And it's really, um, it's gripping because um, he, he describes the physical pain. The pain, it's as if he's chewing on gravel. It's as if, as if um, every physical thing has trapped him. And um, you can get a sense of um, his um, claustrophobia as he's encaged and, um, and kept in. But then he flip-flops in my language because he turn, he's, the, he's, he's the voice of hope. And um, anybody who has a, uh, anybody who goes to a, a Christian church that sings uh, hymns will probably recognize, um, let me find the line, um, uh, okay, well, well, let me, let me, before I, if I can do this, um, I'd like to say, um, uh, he is talking about God as the one who has seen his affliction, um, and the enemy has driven him and brought him into darkness. Here's some of the language. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away and broken my bones, enveloped me with bitterness, made me sit in darkness, walled me about so I cannot escape, put chains on me. So this is a prisoner, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he's a bear. So he's a bear lying in wait for me. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about God? Is he just talking about the prisoners, um, the captor? Um, he's, shooting, um, he's shooting arrows into him. I mean, this goes on this way. But then um, midway in verse 19 of chapter 3, for anybody who wants to look, um, the thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. I'm sitting here. He, um, my soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down. But then I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love has said of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the name of the Christian hymn. Um, oh, yeah, the Lord yeah. is my portion. Therefore, I hope in him. It's spectacular. However, <laughs> he doesn't stay there. Then he goes on. He goes on and saying, well, the Lord, it's good to do this. It's good to sit here quietly and let the Lord do this to me, to sit alone, for the Lord will not reject forever. And that, but then he goes on and continues to describe all the, the things that have fallen him and, um, and, and um, all the enemies around them and his eyes flow without ceasing, so forth. Anyway, I can't read the whole poem to the whole to, to you because I'll take up all our time. But um, you, you get the sense of the visceral nature of his suffering. You have this great quote that really brings to the surface uh, the, the kind of language that's prevalent throughout Lamentations. It's, as you said, very visceral, very raw and, and honest. Uh, you have this quote that where you say, Laments complain, shout, and protest. They take anger and despair before God and the community. They grieve, they argue, they find fault. Without complaint, there is no lament form. Although laments appear mm-hmm. disruptive of God's world, they are acts of fidelity. In vulnerability and honesty, they cling obstinately to God and demand for God to see, hear, and act. 
So that you're saying this is this is an act of fidelity, like to 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 bring your your anger to God, essentially. <laughs> I am saying that. I'm I'm saying that, and I think that this book it, it is um, it's painful. I mean, it, it uh, and then and then there's accusations against God. For example, in the next poem, in which the whole community seems to be speaking. The Lord, Yahweh, gave full vent to his wrath and poured out his anger on us and kindled the fire in Zion. So then and th- this chapter is starting to interpret it, what's happened to them, as God's attack on them. And they are not happy with this. They are not pleased with this. And they keep begging God to see them and to pay attention. This is as if, um, as if God could just if God could just notice and really look at them and see their suffering, then what would happen? Well, what would happen is that they're no longer alone in their suffering. If if they could have a sense that God was looking at them, then things would be okay because God would see. But their deepest their deepest fear here is that that God has forgotten them and walked away from them, and that that comes out really clearly in the last two chapters um, where the community seems to be speaking. And, um, but, but I, I say, I mean, I say that this book, uh, this book is an, an astonishing of fidelity, but I, I think it's more than just the voices telling God the truth in this relationship. Um, well, we could pause and say, how do you tell real truth in all our relationships and especially if you can't even do it to God, but this gives us an example of how to do it. Um, and so, um, how, how do you, how do you have a relationship if you can't tell the truth? And so they're doing, so it's an act of faith that way, but there's something so much more important, I think to me, because, well, not more important, but equally important. They, they want God to see God doesn't give any evidence in this book that God hears or sees at all. And most of them don't acknowledge that God does. But I argue that the book itself is the act of fidelity. And what it's most faithful to is the suffering of the people. It, it, the, the fact that God doesn't speak means there's no answer given in the book. Instead, there are all these voices of pain and loss and grief being presented to God. And the book, I think of the book as, um, as like a little temple of human suffering. I think it honors human suffering in a way that maybe only Job does or the, the, passion, the gospel passions of Jesus' death and resurrection do. This book, this book opens that terrain and it doesn't try to brush it away. So, so then, it, it, I mean, I say it's a book that refuses denial. It denies denial. And um, I say in the book, too, that that's kind of the way I grew up, where you deny you, in, in my family, it, it, as in many families, there was always you know, look on the bright side, uh, yeah. cross over to the sunny side of the street, that kind of uh, attitude. Um, which I, I, for which I do not blame my parents. I think it's just the cultural reality yes. of yes. of things. But very hard things happen in my family before I was even born, 
and they were never talked about. So you you kind of you you to me it's like the the way that gets trauma gets passed on to the next generation and loss and grief denied uh, can have the effect of cutting off flourishing life. Yeah, you can survive. Yeah, talk, by not grieving. Talk, talk about that a little bit because you 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 do a great job of expanding on that in in um, honestly both both books the book on Jeremiah and and, and the book we're, we're talking about right now this denial of pain and how we we tend especially in Western culture we want we want hope and the happy ending instead of acknowledging pain um, and and even we we talked um, with a uh, uh, Dr. Pauline Boss uh, this time last year on her book on amb- mm-hmm. ambiguous loss. And talking about how just this idea of pushing people uh, along faster than uh, they're probably ready uh, to in terms oh, of yeah. grief. And like, and, and this idea that there should be a time limit on grief. And, and the fact yeah. that Western society, we just don't acknowledge, we don't do the job we should be doing to help assist those who are going through the grieving process. So talk about that. That's, that's great. Right. Well, okay. Well, uh, the the voice of the voice of the woman in 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 Lamentations helps me illustrate it because she she just sort of cries out about how great her suffering is and how her suffering is vaster than the sea. And um, I I observe that that can sound self centered and myopic and completely focused on herself, which of course would be the case. In a, in a society like this. But that the benefit of that is to say, this suffering is beyond words. This suffering is beyond words. And the only thing I can compare it to, says she, is sea, which in the ancient world was even more considered more mammoth and more monstrous than it ever would be now. That it was just the great, a great mystery was the ocean or the sea. And that's how bad her suffering is. So, She's bringing it forward, and um, and I, I think that one of the things the book does is, if you are suffering, the Book of Lamentations is it, it gives you a companion in that suffering. You're not alone, and um, and I have another a- anecdote I can say about this problem of our culture that doesn't let us sometimes doesn't let us grieve, and doesn't allow us to have bad feelings or to express despair or unhappiness, all of those things that our culture does. Um, and that's when, um, when I was teaching at Mary Knoll School of Theology, a Latin American priest came, well, he's actually from Spain, named John Sabrino. He's, he's a pretty famous theologian who's written about mercy. And um, he, was, he was one of the people who was... Um, to be attacked when, well, you wouldn't all know this, but um, he was to be, he was the target of an attack on the Jesuit community in El Salvador, and he happened not to be there. And um, about a year later, he came to speak at my school, and in the school were um, some American uh, students who, in, in my take on it, were really displacing themselves in um, in solidarity with other people, or at least claiming solidarity. And um, so here's what happened. They would start comparing suffering in the United States with suffering in some of these countries that were in warfare. And John Sabrino said 
somebody from the audience said, well, um, isn't it true that here in uh, the United States we have so much wealth that we really shouldn't even be talking about suffering? And he's, he just stopped dramatically and said, all suffering is sacred. All suffering is sacred. Oh, wow. And so the kinds of individual, right, it is, it is. And, and if, what if we thought that? What if we really, what if we really considered that suffering is sacred? Then we wouldn't be rushing people past it. We wouldn't be rushing ourselves past it. And, um, we might, I mean, I could make some political comments right now, but I'll refrain. But <laughs> probably uh, already made most of them who, for you, so it's okay. <laughs> about, <laughs> about who has not been allowed to have any suffering, yeah. so inflicts it on other people. Right. But um, <laughs> it, it, is, it is exactly that. It is, it is all connected. And um, for Christians who wish to be in any kind of ministry or discipleship, if we're not able to touch deeply into our own suffering, if we can't touch that, we really can't be in close connection to other suffering people. We can't, we, have, we run the danger of projecting our experience onto them, uh, acting like we know what's right for them, and trying to fix them. When, in fact, the Book of Lamentations indicates first thing that's needed is to be seen in your suffering. That, why? Well, my trauma theory helps a little bit with that, because um, when you've experienced dramatic violence and suffering, you, 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 you cut off from everything and everyone, you're isolated, and your suffering is so deep you think you're crazy. And if you're seen in all your woundedness, you regain some of your dignity. You, you, you capture some of your humanity back, and you're no longer alone. And so, to me, I mean, not that I practice this very well, but to me, um, if we, we take our own suffering as sacred, then we can reach out and connect with other suffering people without trying to fix them. I do think we should fix our culture, yeah. uh, but even that requires, I think, um, m- more than anything, it, recognizing our own participation in the sufferings of the world and the brokenness of the world. And you know, I'm reminded of Henry Nolan's wonderful work, The Wounded Healer. I, you know that book? Yeah, John? yeah, very Ooh, much it's so. It's old. Yeah, it's like... Um, it's like lamentations can help us see our own wounds and how we, the wounded, need our own healing. Yeah, oh my gosh. It, you... You talk about that, uh, and, and I, th- I just felt like you just hit the nail on the head. Where y- y- you talk about um, uh, survivors of trauma and and how important it is just to be heard, and how and it reminded me of a conversation that we had had with a previous guest where we were talking about these empty platitudes that seem to be our first instinct that are just really not helpful when all the person wants 
is maybe just a hug, you know? <laughs> so Right. Or, or just to be looked at or listened to or... Yeah. Um, well, the other thing is, like, for, having taught in seminary long enough, um, students then who need to go visit the sick and, the, you know, the stories from CPE training and things where they're standing outside the door and they're terrified to go in to talk to the person in the bed. And almost always that's because they haven't faced their own mortality or their own, their own, uh, their own sense of, of their brokenness and, and the person in the bed reveals it to them. So it, yeah. it really is um, a key, or, or not there isn't a key, but it is a, a mode a mode of participation in community and um, bringing love into the world. Yeah. One of the the things I really wanted you to talk about that I thought was just outstanding was this section where you talk about, and and now I have to go get this, uh, this um, other author's book here, Judith, Judith Herman and the two stages of recovery, recovery from trauma. Judith Herman. Yeah. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. That section was just absolutely blew my mind where, where you talk about the two stages and how it relates to your work here. So I would love for you to talk about that. Remind me what they are because I didn't. I don't remember <laughs> reviewing that. I, I remember sure. her. Sure, I've got it right here. So uh, when survivors begin to tell what happened to them and find language to oh. name the disaster, and then the second one is to yeah. the work of the witness, one who receives the grief hidden and the haphazard narratives right. recalled by the victim. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the the part. Let me let me land first on the witness part. I think that's what that's the language that I want to to talk about. Um, for the book of Lamentations, because it is a witness to human suffering. That's what I mean when I say the book is a, a temple um, honoring suffering. It, it stands up and says back to the people. It gives them a mirror of what's happened to them in poetic form. And, um, and so the, the book itself serves as a comfort. Who would think that? Because it's so, it's so brutal. But it is a comfort in that it stands as a witness to what's happened to them without literally, although some places it gets quite literal, without literally uh, putting them back in the trauma. So um, I believe in a theology of witness, and I, I think that, um, that it's, it is a, a deeply needed way of being with other people in the world. Okay, so then, uh, narratizing. What happens, but doesn't really happen so much, it seems to me, in Lamentations, as it does in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, is that is that people start retelling the story. And um, survivors need to tell the story. I mean, even, even people who've been in a car accident where they didn't even get hurt, afterwards, you just have to tell it and tell it because you can't quite take it in as it's occurring. Yeah. You can't retell it. And, and trauma theorists write about, um, especially of, of whole communities, how you can't, you can't reconstruct what happened with, with any kind of certainty. And if you do it um, too soon or too literally, it plunges you back into the, the chaos and the experience of suffering, you get stuck there. I mean, that's in a sense what part of what PTSD is. But now think about that in terms of a whole community. Um, a disaster that strikes a community, then um, when, when you, what are you going to do? How do you get past it? 
well, we, we didn't mention this yet, but you've got to grieve it. But, but once you're in the process of grieving it, you, you need to re-narratize it. You need to retell the story, not in a literal way, I think in a poetic and literary way that conveys your experience, but at a distance. Um, I, I like to play with the language of um, Emily Dickinson about poetry. What, is, what does, should poetry do? Poetry tells the truth, but tells it slant. Yes. And that's what, that's what <laughs> Lamentations does. That's what Jeremiah does. I think that's what Genesis is also doing. And, and so it, it, if that happens, it's like going to a movie that you get so engrossed in because somehow it's your story, even though it's somebody else's story completely. But you can identify with the suffering or the experiences, the people there. That's, that's the way I think the text functions. So, um, so then, um, where were we? What was the question you asked me? <laughs> oh, yeah. I can see um, the fire hose at work here. <laughs> um, what was the question you asked me? <laughs> I, I think just... Oh, uh, J- yeah. Judith Herman. Yeah, yes. Judith Herman. Yeah. Um, about narratizing. Mm. Um, so, um, I, so I don't think Genesis does it too, or Lamentations does it too much, except when it says this happened as punishment. It says that when the city of Jerusalem, uh, I call her daughter Zion, is speaking, it happens when the narrator is talking about what happened to her, and it happens when the um, when the the strong man or the, the captured soldier in chapter three is speaking that they're being punished and um, they see God as an abusing, avenging and punishing God like a really strict parent or someone who's angry and um, throwing and throwing fiery rocks upon them. And um, here's what trauma theory helped me more than anything theologically and I don't say it about lamentations as much as I do about my Jeremiah work, but what, what I discovered with trauma theory is that afterwards, people have to make sense of it. That's the narratizing process. You can't live without an explanation. This even happens if people get cancer or something like that. You, um, you, get, you get a disastrous disease, and people start trying to figure out why it happened to them. And how, what, what did they do wrong? What, what should they have done they didn't do? Or in an automobile accident or in, um, in the destruction of a, a, fire, a fireball that hits the house? They don't have any words for it. But then they have to think about what was cause and effect. And the reason for that is that we can't live in chaos. We can't live without meaning. We can't live without some understanding of a safe sense of life. And so one of the ways that the theologians of our Bible, and especially um, around the texts that we have to do with and uh, emerge from the Babylonian crisis, um, is that they try to make sense of what happened. And one way that is done is to say that God is punishing us and we are sinners. But if you took historical analysis from a modern point of view about what happened 
in the Babylonian invasion, there were so many other factors to consider, such as the aggressive empire trying to expand its own control of the of the ancient world, which is Babylon, the the big mistakes of the kings, the bad leadership of some of the prophets and and priests, the um, inequity of the rich and the poor, the, the you can go on and come up with all the yeah, yeah. other explanations. <laughs> so, but but the people make sense of it. One way some of them make sense of it is to say God is punishing us for right. our sins. Now, I think that's, a, I call that a survival tactic. It's a survival tactic. Children do that who are abused. They say, oh, if I hadn't made so much noise, then mommy or daddy wouldn't have beaten me up. Or if I had been, if I, had, if I hadn't gone out when, when I was told not to, then maybe, um, Daddy wouldn't have hit mommy. All these these explanations that that are that are not just restricted to children, but to people who survive abuse and difficulty and terrible violence and have to make sense of it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And and one of the things that I, I noticed too about the the first of the two stages uh, that we just talked about is is just this idea of putting a name to. The trauma. I think that's so important because just by naming a thing sometimes can take some of the the power from it. You know what I mean? Like, is that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's. I just think that's so important. But the other thing too, I think that underlies this entire thing here is specifically in regards to really really allowing ourselves to to talk about these traumas and to to really fully embrace grief, um, especially in our in our culture today. Um, is you, you talk about like tears and, and weeping and things like that. And, and yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's, it's funny. <laughs> I saw, I saw my friend, um, Dr. Jacqueline Bussey, uh, a few weeks ago, she was speaking here at the uh, seminary in Columbus and she talks about uh-huh. this. She brought, she brought up the point and I thought this was really, uh, fascinating cause I had never considered it. She says, what, what are the, what's the first thing that you typically say to someone if you start to to cry in front of them, you say I'm sorry. So why are we apologizing? We should not be apologizing for our, right. for our tears. So oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bible has all yeah, of these weep. examples where, like, the Bible's telling you to weep. You know, like, like it's at one telling point, you to weep. Yeah, you point out there's a, a part. I think it's in the the book you wrote on Jeremiah where you talk about uh, Jeremiah tells Zion uh, not only to mourn but to wail bitterly as if mourning the loss of an only child. That's intense. Right, yeah. right, right. And so, I mean, I think that one of the things that happens in our culture is that again, the, you know, looking good all the time. So, if you, especially, there's a sort of macho quality about that. You're not supposed to allow for weakness. You're not supposed to allow for sorrow and grief. And maybe, as you said before, you know, maybe after someone close to you dies, people will be comforting and helpful to you. But then if you are not able to get back to it quickly, you start feeling like there's something wrong with you. And tis not so. Tis not so. It's, it, the grief process is different for everybody. It's different for everybody. And uh, it's an accumulative one. Um, 
uh, one year, um, the year my mother died uh, was shortly after that, our dog died. And then shortly after that, our cat died. Oh, my God. And I'll tell you, I cried for my mother terribly. Then I cried harder for the dog and even harder <laughs> for the cat. Yeah. <laughs> and and what, it, what it shows you is that, you know, that I hadn't finished grieving my mother. Right, yeah. Or the animals, of course. I cared about the animals. But, there's, I mean, there's no comparison at all about what I lost in those three cases. But it was, it was a matter of me not having grieved it deeply enough, and it takes everybody a different amount of time and different ways of doing it. And, um, it can't be rushed. Rushing it is truly the worst thing to do. The ancients were better than we about this. They had rights. They had funeral rights that, um, they, they would tear their clothes. They would throw, when someone died, they would throw ashes or dirt in the air. Um, they would, they would, they would render themselves as if, they were deceased, as if they were joining the corpse by the actions of tearing what represented them. And, um, and we, we know from Jeremiah, or at least we think from Jeremiah and other places, that there were women, the mourning women, who showed up when there was a death and they howled and wailed. I think that's what you were talking about before. Yeah, yep. And, and they, they would wail. And their purpose, their purpose was to provoke sorrow and grief in the traumatized person who's doing the grieving um, to help you start the process of grieving. And um, I mean, some Christian communities and certainly other religious communities have wonderful um, rites of, uh, for funerals and memorial services. Um, and I think it's a terrible loss if we don't have them when, um, when, the death of a loved one isn't, isn't marked in a formal way with the community around you. I think it's, um, it's a very sad thing for our culture when that happens. Um, yeah. Oh my God. But, but I'm, I come from a community that, that of course that practiced the Irish wake where you, there was always a casket and, um, you actually saw the dead body of the person that you loved. Yeah. Yeah. It helps you grieve. It helps you grieve. Yeah, we. Um, I, I think the the place I would like to end because you actually just answered the the next question I was going to ask is have you talk about uh, how um, our ancestors had had a uh, system and a and uh, a process for for working through grief in a, in a healthy way um, to to really right. immerse yourself in it and and hopefully come back. I think you say uh, to come back to life at some point after that. Right. Right. But, but, but you cannot, if you don't do this process, if you don't do it, you'll go on with life and things will be fine, but you can't really flourish and thrive unless the process it's, is unfolds organically and you enable yourself to grieve in whatever way that is. And it might not be physical tears, though I always like to point out that the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas saw tears as a gift. Yeah. Um, and he was, he was really wise about that, the gift of tears. Um, but um, you have to find your own way of doing it, and it's best if you have company doing it, but if you don't, you still have to find your own way if you want to thrive. And um, so uh, I, I think about my own, my own parents. My parents 
both met when they were teenage. They met each other when they were teenagers and both had lost in the course of the year that they met, they both had already lost a, a younger brother. One was five years old. The other was six years old. And, um, they were, one was illness and the other was tragic circumstances. And, um, I, I had the, the feeling that, that never really was deeply grieved, especially my father's side. And, you know, I could, you could see, you could see how it, its traces came even you know decades later and, you know, probably other things com- compounded it, but, um, anyway, I, yeah, that's, I'm for grief. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm a cheerleader for grief. Absolutely. Um, and grieving. So, so as we, as we draw to a close here, cause I know we're, we're running out of time, but what, what would be your suggestions for how can we, as a people, how can we, as, uh, you know, a lot of folks who are listening are, are, are Christians or identify as Christians, but how, how can we, as a, as a community, I would say in a broader sense, be better lamenters and better grievers, uh, going forward. Well, um, Okay. I, I, well, I've, there, the, there isn't an answer to that question. There mm-hmm. are, are many answers to that question. One, of course, is for those who are church leaders or community of faith leaders to come upon those resources. And you were saying that you might be, you might be using this particular interview for Christmas time. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that's really a sensitive and wonderful thing. You know, that some churches have blue Christmas celebrations for yeah. people who are alone and who are grieving. Um, so, I mean, I think that all year long, I think uh, prayers of the faithful, I think liturgical practices, I think music is so critical for helping people grieve. And I think it does happen in our culture um, through, I mean, like country music. I'm not really a big country music fan, <laughs> yeah. but in the course of my life, I've broken up with somebody. Boy, there's nothing like a good country song <laughs> to get you going. Um, but 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 there's there's also something larger than 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 just grieving. I think it's about us realizing we are we have bodies and we are incarnated. We are human beings incarnated in bodies, and that our bodies store up all these losses and and sufferings, and they're there in our bodies. And so um, somehow. Uh, attentiveness to, I guess I'm now talking about mindfulness practices, about living in the moment and taking our bodies into account and the impulse to weep and, and scream and these, these feelings that are embodied. Um, and it, it's not sometimes just a mental process. It's, it might even involve just being present to ourselves through quiet meditation, through prayerful praying of the Psalms, these things can help us. And um, I mean, I think yoga can help in this too. I mean, I think I think walking, all these things that that, that bring us in closer union of mind and body and spirit can help with grief and um, make us whole and and bring us closer to flourishing. And above all, um, compassion for other people. It's that, that is completely connected to our compassion for ourselves. Oh, could not agree more, especially with, um, you know, what we see going on in the, in the world today. And I don't know if this is the new norm or, 
or uh, if it if it gets better from here. But I, I certainly think that we could do with um, a little more compassion in the world. So. What a, what a great place to, to end our time together. Thank you so much. Uh, before I let you go, though. Oh, John, it was so much fun. <laughs> I, I had a great Thank time. Thank you yeah. so much. Oh, my gosh. And there's, <laughs> I, it's funny. I have like Thank two more you. pages of questions I could have asked you, but um, so we'll have to have you back on so we can get more into your new Oh, award. no, well, you just didn't, you, you didn't interrupt me enough. I told you I would be a firehose. <laughs> Once all... you press the button, there it goes. <laughs> it rips right away. Well, thank you. It really was a joy, and I'm, I'm grateful to you. Well, for thank this you so and much. for your the work you're doing. Well, thank you. And and before we let you go, though, um, is there a certain place where people should go to stay on top of what you're currently working on? Well, I've, I'm I've just finished have published volume one of my Genesis uh, account with Smith and Hellwis Publishing, and volume two should be coming out within the year. And I do continue this, though I don't talk so much about grieving as I do about trauma itself. Because I think some of those really difficult texts in Genesis, the crooks of interpretation, like um, Noah's Flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, all those catastrophe, I call them, I call them disaster stories. Yeah. I think they're still reflecting back on the disasters, the disaster of the, of the Babylonian period and its aftermath. And, but what Genesis does, while I can... I think it continues to do some of the work of the or of of locations and of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but what it does is it moves past it. It really is re-narratizing. It's saying God has promised you children. What do destroyed people need? They need children to have a future. God has promised you a great name. God has promised you blessing and material well-being. So it's as if Genesis is at the point. Uh, it's intervening in history to tr- to promise this people that they have a future. Now, of course, you're going to say to me, oh, no, Genesis is about <laughs> the beginning of the world. Right, right. But I'm saying that it's telling us about beginnings mm. in order to help the people begin again. And um, so that that's another conversation. But that's what I'm doing now. That's what I'm done with doing now. I'm now retired officially. Oh, done. wow. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Well, we will since you since you retired and you have more spare time, then we definitely have to have you back on to talk about Genesis. So, especially it's two volumes, so you know, we'll uh, we'll, we'll get you back so well, we can thanks. talk about that. <laughs> thanks so much, John. I really appreciate. You oh, work. thank you. This was an absolute pleasure. That's
upset Then I leave But let's stick around I said too much I let you down